RadioInfluence.com. Hey, everybody. I want to say, first of all, hello. It's Jen Frederick. This is America's Best Friend. And we haven't been talking for, candidly, a few months because a lot has been going on in my life. And yes, I know that this is supposed to be something where we laugh about things and we talk about crazy stories. And I promise, promise, promise that this podcast will get back to all of that insanity soon. Um, But I need you to know why I've been absent. So first, I had a birthday. So I was going crazy with my friends and it was a really, really lovely week. And then on Saturday, I got a call that candidly will forever change me. I learned that my baby sister had passed away and um, I was surrounded by so many friends and so much family and I really, really leaned on them quite a bit. And I took some time off from work and then came back to work and then took a full week off When I came back, I wrote about the circumstances of her death. And so many of you guys reached out via text, email, direct messages, and really said that you liked that I had shared my personal story and that it was something, sadly, horrifically, that you guys were also familiar with. So we are going to talk about this in a very um, kind way. And we're going to do it with one of my favorite people on planet Earth. Okay, so I call her the Deb. And her name is Deborah Donzi. And she's a psychotherapist. She has dealt with, you know, help people go through trauma and addiction and all of those things. But my favorite thing is I love talking to her because she is the mom of one of my best friends. You'll forgive me, doctor, therapist, if I just call you the Deb. Are you cool with that, Deb? I'm cool. Okay. So, you know, I shared with you, basically, here's the story. You have not, we have not talked about this personally, but, you know, Emily was 13 years younger than me and she was pregnant with her first child, which was really exciting. She was probably about five months pregnant. And, you know, several years ago, she definitely was addicted to drugs. And, you know, like many people, she started, I do believe, with, you know, the painkillers and then it, and it advanced somewhere along the line. You know, she was doing heroin. And I think a lot of people know me being on TV as Jen Fred, as this crazy person that is always in a good mood, always up for fun. Um, I share pictures of my family and my friends. And so, you know, although I was always willing to talk to someone about drug addiction and uh, you hate to even say the word heroin, but heroin, I never hit it in person when I talk to people. But I do think that, you know, the, the assumption is that I, I live a perfect life. And Deb, you know this, no one lives a perfect life, right? True. Very true. So I think, you know, part of why I want to talk to you is, so she went to rehab. We were all very happy. Um, Certainly over the past two years, when I would see her, I had questions about her sobriety. Um, And I would reach out to my dad, who I'm closest with in my family. And I would say, something's something's not right. 
And he would always say, she's good. She's solid. Um, the last time I saw her in person, we had a great visit. She lives in a city that's about five hours away from me. So I didn't see her all the time. And, you know, I shared in my blog post that I went to college when she went to kindergarten. Right. So we didn't have a traditional, very close knit sister relationship, but I know that she knows that I was always there for her. And I know that if I ever needed anything, she was going to be there for me. And so it sounds like she was treating depression with drugs. And when they found her, there was drugs around her. And um, so I think the assumption is that she could have been overwhelmed with this pregnancy that she had wanted so badly, or maybe she was overwhelmed with life in general. And I know that, you know, it, we're going through a crazy year right here. So I guess the first question I want to ask you relates to all of the emails that I've received, text, emails, direct messages. And I feel like I didn't do enough. And there are plenty of people out there who are saying, you know, this has taken over my life, trying to help this person who is dealing with addiction. So how are we supposed to know if we're doing enough to help a person that we know is struggling with addiction? That's an excellent question, Jen. And before we start, please, may I offer my condolences to you and your family for your Thank loss. You. Thank you. Thank um, you. Yes, when, when we talk about addiction today, we talk about it in terms of the medical model. So we really try to eliminate any judgment, uh, any stigma that certainly did follow addiction in, in prior years, for sure. So if you could, if I could just relay this in terms of uh, cancer, if you have a person in your family who is who has cancer has received that diagnosis. Let's walk through those steps and see what the comparison to addiction would be. Is that all right with yeah, you? Yeah, I like that. All right. Well, first off, as I just mentioned, no judgment. You'd have no judgment with, with uh, a cancer diagnosis, nor would you, hopefully, for an addiction one. Then you would arm yourself with as much information as you possibly can, correct? If you yeah. loved one received a cancer diagnosis. Yeah, you would arm yourself and you would journey with this person and not isolate them. You would keep them close to you so that you can get as much knowledge as possible and be able to share that with each other and, and perhaps even join a, a community of, of other people who are suffering from the same thing to, to seek some kind. So you don't feel isolated. You check in. You're like, hey, did you get your this test or that test? Have you tried the whatever oil? You're absolutely right. Right. Absolutely. All right. So you're you're journeying with them with this. Now, where this actually deviates from uh, a cancer diagnosis to addiction is actually the psychological component. Because in a cancer diagnosis, you might find your, your loved one has um, a, a feeling of depression and anxiety, but that's normally because the treatments for cancer are so toxic. Mm -hmm. So you, you kind of expect that. With addiction, the psychological kicks in with their craving for the substance abuse. 
it kind of preys on the body to continue th- this abuse. That's where it departs from you know, regular, uh, a, a regular medical disease. But having said that, once again, it's important to re- recognize that we now use the medical model and there, so we can eliminate as much shame as we can. So, you know, like I said in my blog that like her brain was sick and her heart wanted to fix it, but her brain, you know, she was clearly, you know, depression is a mental illness. So like her brain was making her so sad. And I know that her heart wanted to be happy. I know that she wanted this baby and I know that she wanted, she loved the crap out of her husband, James, you know, and she loved being with my mom, her mom, you know, she loved my kids. And so I think that's part of it. It's like when you have cancer, you still have your brain telling you to fight for yourself. And I feel like when you have a mental illness and drug addiction, it's all up in the brain. So the brain is saying you can't fight for yourself. Exactly. You're fighting for the substance. You're fighting for whatever high it gives you, for the feeling, the euphoria, for whatever positive you think it's giving you. That's what your brain is telling you to do. And that's why we, what we have to do to rewire that. You know, when we combat the physical aspects of dependency, drug dependency, we have to address the psychological as well. So, you know, I um, never wanted to criticize her. You know, I, again, I think that many people think that I live a, a pretty close to perfect life. And I have to say, in terms of many people's situation, I do, right? I've got so many friends that I surround myself with. My spoiled, rotten kids have friends they surround <laughs> themselves with. My husband, he, I mean, let's, let's face it, that guy won the lottery when I agreed to say yes to him several decades ago. <laughs> but anyway, no, I, I live a, a, certainly a, a perfect life on the outside. I have a job on TV and I get to do fun things outside of COVID. So I never wanted to criticize her. I never wanted to like, I hate when people criticize me. I hate when people say you should wear more makeup or you should wear a different outfit. And so when this addiction thing started, I was really reluctant to call her and say, you know, get help or do this. And you're right. If she had cancer, I would have like told her, come to Philadelphia go to the cancer center. It's a big, you know, whatever. But I will say towards the end of it all of the original addiction. So like five years ago, I was with her in person. We were at a family event at the end of the event. I, in front of many people, I said, give me a hug in case I never see you again. Wow. And she said, what do you mean? And we had never talked about drugs. Mm-hmm. And I said, I mean, I know you're doing drugs. You know, mom told me that you did this and sold this to go. It's the same story everywhere. And she goes, mom, why would you tell them? She didn't say that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Right. She knew it was true. And, 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 you know, she was so mad at me for saying something to her almost, you know, like taking the, the curtain off or the veil off, if you will. Right. But I wonder how are we supposed to start? Like if, if my cousin Dave, I don't have a cousin Dave, if, if he's addicted, how are we supposed to start? You know, with cancer, you text, you're like, oh my God, I just heard, what can I do? Is that what we're supposed to do with drug addiction and depression? So if you see that your loved one has obsessive thoughts about drugs and constant worry that there isn't or won't be any around, a warning sign. Uh, feelings of fear 
and extraordinary anxiety at the thought of potentially losing any access to drugs. If you feel that there, there are blatant personality changes in your loved one, incredible restlessness and anxiousness, physical sickness when drugs are not taken, um, shakiness, frequent mood swings, lying to people, once again, basic personality changes. Yeah. So if you notice any uh, of these, this is what uh, I suggest that, that you do. You first, you're going to arm yourself with as much information as you can before you talk to, to your loved one. You're, you're going to have to understand that if, if, particularly if they're not ready to accept the fact that they are truly misusing a substance, they're gonna be in a state of denial. They're, they're gonna worry about their jobs. They're, they're gonna use rationalization for continuing. All of these things are, are probably gonna be laid at your feet when you go to confront. But if you've armed yourself with information, information is power. And you can sit down and, and discuss with them rationally okay uh we we've got a problem here i'm here to help if they say no no problem no problem all right well you're not meeting at the right time the right space but you've given them an entree and a safe place for them to come when they are ready and sooner or later they're they're going to be ready on some level it's going to be somebody's going to notice something and that's going to be construed as an intervention. And when that time comes, then you're going to have that information. You're going to be armed with whatever treatment is uh, they're going to follow for, for whatever reason. And I'd like to address that a little later. But, um, yeah, you're going to at least arm yourself for information and be present. Be there for them and know that they can talk and you're going to journey with them. Yeah. Is that a good enough answer? Or yeah, no, I, it's funny. Like when she first went into treatment again years ago, you know, she was a smoker and okay. she couldn't find a facility that accepted people who want to smoke cigarettes, you know? Right. right. So yeah. I, as you say, I think, and you know, people were scrambling and so she stayed home for another week and, Mm -hmm. I, you know, again, I lived, I lived far away. So I was getting all this information, you know, via text and stuff. And so it, it, I think the other thing too is I think, like you said, those those changes in their personality, and they seem so obvious on this side of it, right? Right. Which is why you know you hear this. You know, I have a teenage boy who plays sports, and I have a adolescent daughter, and they always say like, you know, now you know, don't give them oxycodone even if they have a broken leg or all that other stuff. So, going back to I think once they're already like making life changes or life decisions based on getting drugs. I think the big question is like how quick, you know, in fourth grade or whatever, when they had officer friendly come to my school, they said, you can get addicted after smoking pot one time. I think we now know that's not realistic and whatever, but I, I do want to know like how quickly can you get addicted to this stuff? Well, you can certainly get addicted very quickly, depending upon your familial dis, uh, predisposition. 
Yeah. So it's it's really hard for me to say that, yeah, after four joints for somebody, they, they might get addicted. And that might be the case. They might start chasing that high immediately or or not. But if I can just run through a scenario of how someone could get addicted, maybe you'd understand a, a little easier about how it can come about. Yeah. Suppose um someone goes in for some surgical procedure. And in this day and age, we really do have wonderful advanced meds for pain management. So after the surgery, they start, the physician starts you on a pain med. Well, what might happen is that after you are through with that course, you're left with some chronic pain some residual pain. Well, that prescription may be filled again. Now it's not filled over the phone. It's not easy. You have to go actually pick up the script and bring it to the drugstore. And after a few times, your doctor is probably not going to want to give it to you. But this is how the dependency starts. You don't realize that at that moment, your body is really becoming dependent on it. You may think that your personality is just fine, but people who are around you and who love you may see a huge, huge difference. And um, so you're gonna have to, you're gonna start chasing this feeling, the, this med, to start feeling more and more normal. So you can see how your your normal is changed. And so if you can't get this anymore, if you have access to heroin or street drugs, you're gonna start taking it at that that particular moment. I'm gonna give you an example of my husband. Uh, 15 years ago, he had cervical disc surgery. We had a neurologist prescribing him Oxycontin. We had a physiatrist prescribing him Oxycontin before the surgery, during the surgery, after the surgery. And my husband does not have an addictive personality. And that's what I mentioned before, a familial disposition. So you can look to your family tree. Normally you don't have to look that far to see if there's any addiction problems. But I did not, I knew that there wasn't with my husband, but one day I was wrapping his, his neck so he could take a shower and I was just making casual conversation and he started to cry. Oh. And I'm thinking, this is not him. This is not, there is, the, now this is the meds talking. It's not my husband. All right, I didn't do particularly the right thing, but I did it out of love and fear. I stopped the Oxycontin. And I realized at that moment, he had been on it for at least a month. He immediately went into a a physical withdrawal and was really quite sick. As a matter of fact, we had to have somebody with him for at least 24 to 48 hours to make sure that he was all right. But you can see that was after a month. And it's not, and it, and he needed that, but his body then craved it, and his mind kept telling him, "I'm, I'm going to hurt. You're going to, you're going to feel awful if you stop taking this." So he was willing to continue taking it as long as they were going to give it to him to feel okay. But as soon as he realized what was happening, of course, you know, we we went on to an over-the-counter med, and he was fine. So oh. you really see how quickly this can start and it, it it doesn't it doesn't matter if if you're 
a, a young person or an old person. It, it just, age doesn't matter. The addiction can set in and you might not be aware that it's doing it, but it's doing its damage and can be very quickly. That's crazy. I'm glad you shared that. All right, so here's my question now, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think this is the most of the people who have reached out. Uh, you know, I shared that, you know, Emily passed away and I shared that she loved her husband and Emily and my mom were truly best friends. They lived very close to each other. And, um, you know, she definitely talked to my mom two to three times a day, every day of her life. And they would go on mother daughter vacations every year. And again, I wouldn't really go on that because I have this crazy life, you know, with these kids and all this other stuff. So now my question is like, how am I supposed to help my mom? You know, how am I supposed to help her husband? Her husband's been, you know, a part of our family, you know, for 10 years, but you know, he's, he's a young man and I want him not today or tomorrow or next month. I want him to, you know, in some way at some time, find love again. I love him that much, you know, and I want my mom to find purpose. You know, she's retired and her whole life was Emily and really in recent years, making sure that she was well or, you know, getting excited about this new baby. And I think, you know, I, with these texts and these emails, I've heard like my brother-in-law is dealing with addiction um, after he lost his wife or so how do we help the people left behind or how do we help the people that aren't maybe the person struggling but the support network or the how do we help those people i mean without saying go to a meeting you know or whatever like what are we supposed to say to them all right i said be before information is power and if you're just left with grief as i'm sure all of you are that's a reactive state the more proactive you can be, the more you're gonna be able to help yourself through this stage of mourning. Talk to clinicians, talk to addiction specialists, get as much information as you possibly can. What happens? So you don't have to continue asking why, why, why did this happen? You'll know, you'll be able to journey with your parents, with your brother-in-law, to seek this information, support groups that are available are, are, are so meaningful for this. Any kind of grief counseling will be valuable. But I, I firmly suggest the more information that you have on the disease that took your sister, the better off your whole family will be. You'll be able to understand and perhaps, because you don't know what's gonna happen in the future, you'll be a resource to someone else. Other than that, it, it takes, I've always said that you've got to go through every season before the healing truly begins. So right now you're in a state of mourning and I respect that and whatever you feel like doing is the right thing to do. But arming yourself for, with, it, with as much information on this disease, I think it will be vital to you in the future. You know, I have to say, I keep talking about my friendship group mm -hmm. and when I learned about Emily, you know, my mom and dad have been divorced for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And my mom and dad were calling at, at the same time, which has never happened. Right. So I knew something was very bad. 
And candidly, I thought that Emily had lost the baby, which is also a, a terrible thing, you know. Yes. But this is, you know, monumentally more terrible. Right. And my mom, you know, it was, I, I shared it was right after my birthday. She had sent me a gift. I forgot to call her to say thank you because I was hanging out with my friends. You know, I, my, I learned from my dad and he was very matter of fact about it. And uh, he lives in Florida. Um, and then I, I said, I got to get off the phone and call mom, you know, because she was the one who was closest to her in our family. And I called my mom and she started screaming at me about not calling her back about the birthday present, which mm -hmm. I know in my rational side of my brain that she was in shock. She had found my sister. Oh my, that's yeah. true trauma. Yeah. So I said, mom, we got to talk about what happened today, you know, two hours ago. Right. And she just, uh, and I think, you know, part of her thing is that, you know, I think we all think what could, we, again, back to this, what could we have done? But I will say this, you know, working as a news reporter, as you say, arming yourself with information when she was asking about what the death investigation would look like and how the funeral services would go. Unfortunately, because of my professional job, I sort of knew a little bit about what that looks like. Right. So mm -hmm. when I, I have to say that when I was able to make it more clinical, if you will, and say, mm -hmm. this is what happens and we have to hire a funeral director and get a, an examiner in there, whatever, having concrete things to talk about because there is so much why, Yes. really helped, you know? So I do think it's interesting that, you know, you say with, with cancer, they don't always like you to go th through a rabbit hole of information and learn all this other stuff. But with this, I do think there is so much black hole of why exactly. that the information has to be healing. Right. Of course it is. And it's all, it's been shrouded for years in, in a cloak of shame. And, you know, for, for the person who's doing the user or doing the using and also for the loved ones of the user, they they've just kind of swept it under the carpet as best they could and, and hope that they would be OK. And, yeah, that happens. But in, in a case like your family situation, when it doesn't, you, you need to have those answers of why. Yeah. Well, and I guess I think. I go back to this embarrassment thing that you alluded to and, and shame. And, you know, so in the area of Philadelphia, there's a place called Kensington and people who live in this region probably know that it's the heroin capital of the world. It's a terrible okay. place to go. It, mm -hmm. you know, it's, they buy and sell heroin and use heroin in broad daylight. There's adults and young adults literally vomiting in the street. Right. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. I've definitely been there many times professionally and in June, which is far before my sister passed away, I took my brother or my brother, my son and his friend there because they are teenagers and I wanted them to see what addiction looks like, uh, okay. you know, because as you say, it's a it can run in families. Right. And right. they were like stunned. And but every time I've been in Kensington professionally and someone comes up to me and they're like, I'm going to rehab tomorrow. You know, I always say to them, why, who's your why? You know, and they would say like, well, I've got three young kids at home. And I'm like, well, why don't you go today? You know, and, and I would talk to them and then they I would always share with them a bit of Emily's story, you know, because candidly, I don't know her whole story because I wasn't living in her town when she went through all of this. But I definitely said you can be brave and there are places to go. And I think there are places to get help. And so I was never ashamed to say that I had a sister who had gone through this. 
you know, like I said, I didn't like broadcast it on the airwaves or social media because I didn't want to hurt her. But I did always feel like sort of like if, if you said my sister had cancer and we got through it or my, you know, my sister, uh, you know, broke her leg and we we got her a cast that um, this information piece, people are looking for like, well, where did she go to get better? People would say that sometimes too. Exactly. And I think that you brought up a really good point, Jen. And if I could just interject something at this time with treatment centers and also treatment availability. Uh, For years, the 12-step programs were the only ones available. And a lot of people did not sign up for that. And I've had some patients tell me exactly why. They didn't want to just be uh, defined by their addiction, be it alcohol or opiates or whatever. They did not want to be defined. And immediately, you know, when you go into these groups, I I am, Deborah, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I'm a drug user. I'm whatever. Well, these are also moms and sisters and friends and daughters and and employees and employers. And, and they don't it's not a question of moral decay. It, it's a question of of I'm I'm ill with this disease and I've got to move on from it and I've got to live my life. So, yeah, 12-step programs are wonderful if if that's what you need, but there's also other uh, medications now that are really terrific as far as curtailing the usage of it because you no longer crave it anymore, like naloxone, uh, suboxone, which uh, naloxone is Narcan, and they also... um, have oh they've been using now trexone off label which is what well vivitrol which is the the injection of now trexone it's a once a month injection some clinicians some physicians have been using that off label and that all that does is just it decreases if not completely eliminates the need now you do this hand the physical need you do this hand in hand with psychological care and you've got yourself a winning combination and you can go on and function without having to go to rehab. You can go outpatient. So it depends upon the severity of, of your um, addiction. It depends upon where you live and who your your um, clinicians are. But there are other things that are available. It, it's so important that while there's life, there's hope. And, and to go and do be proactive and do your studying and research so you can see what's available for you and your loved one. And it'll keep you proactive and positive. So it's funny, on her, on her Instagram page, Emily always had the hashtag, get busy living. Ah, okay. Yeah. And I think that's what you're talking about. And I do think, wow, a year ago, when I was saying I was suspect of her a little bit, if I would have been able to say to her, there's this thing, you don't have to go back to a treatment facility. You could ask for these medicines and you could could still be the you, the Emily that we need Emily to be like, you're, it's funny. It's, it's a different type of thing, but it's like, when I first became a mom, you know, and, and people would say, you know, I'm used to being, oh, that's Jen Fred from TV, right? And mm-hmm. people would say, um, oh, that's Brody's mom. 
And it was really cute. But then it was like, well, why are you wearing that? You're a mom. You know, like no one wants to be have the negative connotation. Right. And so it's the same thing with being a breast cancer survivor. Certainly Mm -hmm. they are surviving, but no one walks around and says survivor Jen Frederick, like they would say addict Jen Frederick. Right. Yes. And that's, they just didn't want to be defined by that. It makes sense. There's so much more. There's, there are so much more to individuals' lives that they shouldn't have to be. But if that one thing is messing up the others, then they've got to get help for that. And I want them to know that there is help available. Even in inpatient facilities, and they're wonderful inpatient facilities, they're also, they're using the Sinclair method, which is timed naltrexone for alcoholism. So yeah, there there are many different uh, medications and protocols. The important thing is that you go out there and do your research and find them. Yeah. Find them right for you. Right. Okay. And then here's one last thing I want to talk to you about. So I have been able, anytime that I need, anytime that I have felt bad or sad or had a question, there's about 14 people, including yourself that I can call. Right. And I can just say, (laughs) I'm like, Oh my God, I, my mom is doing this with the funeral things. It's driving me crazy. Or, Oh my gosh, what a lovely thing. Some person sent me flowers. Isn't that amazing? And, and so I have had an outlet to talk about Emily 24 hours a day, including my own children, you know, because mm-hmm. they have questions obviously about Aunt sure. Emily. She loved them. Um, but there's this whole thing about self-care. Okay. And a lot of my friends are like, you got to get some self-care. And I think in, in regular time, that's total bullshit, right? Like, I think that I, I call bullshit on self-care because what am I, am I supposed to get a massage because my sister passed away? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard for someone like my mom who is wrapped up and, and, and neat and is so tight. I get that kind of thing, but like, what the hell is self-care? Is it a real thing? Is it, is it, I, you know, I call it like I see it. Is it rich women who want to go and get a massage or is it a thing? Because I've never heard of self-care include any kind of therapy or <laughs> community service. I, the only self-care I hear about is a bottle of rosé and a manicure. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> So what's okay. the deal with self-care? Well, you got to be careful with that bottle of rosé. Exactly. Exactly. But having said that, I do think it's very important. If I can use, and I do this a lot, an airline um, analogy, you got to put on your own oxygen mask before you help anybody else with theirs. Now, here's, here's the thing, Jen. Uh, you could get yourself so wrapped up in your loved one, the identified patient, that you become ill, that you become, um, uh, that, that you even die, that you become distant from all your other responsibilities. All right, all those things could happen, and the ultimate being death, and your loved one would still be addicted. Does that do any good for anybody? No. So what you have to do, and it's not a question of necessarily getting a massage, but it's a question of, directing your thoughts, directing your behavior to other people that need you, that love you. Don't forego your hobbies. Don't forego your your personal pleasures and interests. All of those things are, are valuable that keep you, you. 
and so that you don't sink into another kind of, of disease. You know, you need to keep yourself strong and up. And it, look, it might also be um, meditation if that's your thing. There, there's so many different ways that you can have self-care. It could be going out for a glass of wine with your friends too. That's self-care. Yeah. But, you know, that's truly what that means. You just have to keep your eye on who you are and the needs of yourself and your your other uh, loved ones, uh, and and then also be mindful of the identified patient, your other loved one who needs you, as well, who's fallen into addiction. So if you have a balance of that, then you do have self care. I think I'm doing self care. I think I basically have alleviated the reason, or I don't have an excuse to get a massage because I am doing self care. Like, like you said, you know, I'm reaching out to my friends. I'm definitely still, you know, playing tennis and pretending to play golf. I really suck at golf. And, you know, I am caring about my kids, you know, And, and even though I'm talking about Emily and I'm writing about Emily and now we're, you know, we're extra talking about Emily. Um, She's with me every day, Absolutely. but she's not my whole life at this right. point, you know, and right. I do think that's the thing with my mom, you know, yes. because she was her whole life and especially a mom, you know, these retired moms who have these, you know, let's face it, it's fun to look forward to a baby. And, and I've heard from so many, you know, parents who didn't get to be grandparents right. because of a child that had addiction. And it's interesting because I say I wasn't there you know, all the time physically, I was always a text or a call away. And then you think about the parent that is physically in the town and what are they doing? You know, like they must've thought that they've done so much. And, and yet without that information that you're speaking of, what are they doing? Right. They're just sitting there hurting themselves, like yes. hurting the caregiver, right. Destroying them. Exactly. And, and I, I'd also like to mention the fact that when people start reliving their lives after this loss, there might be a sense of guilt yeah. attached to resuming your life. And that's something that you really have to fight. Um, and, and your mom is, is going to have to find ways. And hopefully, since she found your sister, she will get the psychological care that she needs um, because that's true trauma. But um, the, I'm sure the therapist or whoever helps her through this will be able to help her absolve herself of the guilt and fill in that time that she used to take care of your sister for other positive things for herself and her other loved ones. Yeah. Well, I just think, you know, you, you keep using the word loved ones, right? And yes. that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about people who are or were loved, right? Exactly. Very much so. Right. Because no one's losing their mind over someone they don't give a shit about. Right. That's true. <laughs> and look, we're not talking about, and we don't even use the terminology, uh, junkie, right. addict, anything that, you know, you, you might... Uh, just designate as being on skid row or something. These, these are people, these are people who are ill, who are fallen prey to something that they didn't mean to do. I mean, they, they, they truly did not think that it was going to be as horrific as it ends up being so much of the time. So we have to help them through this. And then unfortunately, if their lives are lost because of it, the people that are left behind, helping them grieve, and and helping them carry on yeah well i do love that i picked up the phone and i called you and you answered I'm it glad you did 
And I'm glad that we are able to talk openly and honestly. Absolutely. I think it will help a lot of people. And I just hope maybe there is someone who, you know, is using and maybe they need help and maybe they heard something. Look, if, if I, you know, could get rid of my French fry addiction with, you know, some counseling and a shot, maybe, you know, I know it's, I'm making light of it, but you know, I think that like, that's part of it here is that you, it's gotta be so overwhelming because let's face it. No one knows in the midst of it, how it all happened. You know, like right. your husband, he definitely knew he felt bad, but he didn't know that he could feel good. I, I, that's also part of it, right? It. It's like, oh crap, I can feel good again. And, and right. so I just hope that maybe this little bit, you know, we help people. And then the, the bigger thing is the guilt, right? Because I think right. people do need to know that, you know, we spend so much time trying to make the loved one feel good, but mm -hmm. no one wants to make other people feel good. Right. Right. Well said. All right, baby girl. Well, listen, I will continue to accept all of your kindness because that's all you've ever given me. And that's, I will continue to do so, my dear. And um, I promise to the listeners that we will talk about crazy fun things. And we'll also talk this because you know what? If you're going to be America's best friend, you got to talk about it all, right? That's right. Because it's a every comprehensive day. role you've taken on. All right. I love it. All right. She's Deb. I'm Jen Frederick. And we love the crap out of you guys. Stay safe. Reach out. I'll have lots of information to help you guys. Radio Influence strives to bring you excellence in podcasting. We work with personalities like TV chef Brian Duffy, radio personalities like Ian Beckles, news and political pundits like independent journalists Frank and Tracy Beans, experts from the sports world like veteran football scout and coach Chris Landry, pro wrestling personality David Penzer, MMA experts Jason Floyd and Daniel Galvan, and strength and conditioning coach Jeff Crochelle. If you're looking for food, sports, music, entertainment, politics, no matter the topic, Radio Influence has something for everyone. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.